worshiping today, receive these words of scripture from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Please rise as you are able and receive this reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it out. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Receive what the Spirit is saying. E.B. White, the author of the children's book, Charlotte's Web, among his many quotable quotes, says this, if the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve or save the world 
and a desire to enjoy, to savor the world. It makes it hard to plan my day. I can identify with that. Some of you may be able to identify with that as well. I've always wondered why it was so hard to plan my day. Um, I don't know whether to give it to enjoying the day or to improving the day, saving the world or savoring it. Now, I have some colleagues and friends for whom this is not a choice. They know what you need to be doing and what they think I need to be doing. And I'm reminded of that quote from Henry David Thoreau, beware of someone who comes to do you good. They will every time. This dilemma, even though I've created it in kind of caricature, does feel to one degree or another a challenge that we all have, if not every day, on some days. And against that background, it's absolutely fascinating to read this second chapter of John's Gospel. The chapter opens with Jesus at a wedding where he turns the water into wine. And then with only one verse of transition, it says the Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And it goes into the story of Jesus driving out the traitors, the money changers in the temple. An incident which was pivotal in his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. What's stunning about that is, here's a party on the way to Jerusalem, a wedding feast on the way to a cross. Now, some would say it's making too much of this because this sequence in John's gospel is out of sync with the other three gospels. But the point is, that Jesus, who partied at the wedding feast with such enthusiasm, is the same Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem to take on the power structures and attempting to change the structures no matter what. This Jesus who risked his life in Jerusalem is the same Jesus who partied at the wedding feast. And by putting these back to back, I wonder if John isn't telling us that Cana and Jerusalem go together in a way that we never fully appreciated. Maybe he's saying that you can't really improve the world in any meaningful way unless you thoroughly enjoy it. And you can't really enjoy it unless you're dedicated to improving it. Let's look at the wedding feast. One would be hard-pressed 
to show that this was something incidental or unimportant about who Jesus was. According to the Gospel of John, as soon as Jesus calls his disciples, he goes to a wedding party. But even if we didn't have this particular episode, it would be safe to say that Jesus was a person who thoroughly enjoyed life. Anytime we deal with highly admired figures in history, the tendency is for reality to quickly get covered over by folklore, which renders the figure larger than life. Some of the most helpful and accurate information about a person can be gathered by what their enemies say about them. You might sometimes want to ask yourself the question, what do my enemies say about me? Or what will they say about me? Well, it's accurate to say that the main complaint about Jesus had to do with his lifestyle. And one of those was, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. Now, some of the others were, he breaks the Sabbath because somebody's in need. Or he's not very careful about who he hangs out with and eats with. But the most respected members of the religious community of his day called him a wine-bibber and a glutton. And that's not because he had a drinking problem or an eating problem. It was their way of saying he doesn't have a properly ascetic lifestyle that is appropriate to a holy man. No one who's really religious could enjoy life that much. Now, many of us would agree with that. So much so that often we replace the New Testament stories and image of Jesus with the New Testament stories of John the Baptist. You know, observe Lent all year long. You'd never catch John the Baptist at a party like this unless he was there to put an end to it. He drew the line at lotus and wild honey. That was locust, not lotus. <laughs> As such, he is the patron saint of the Puritan in each of us. But with Jesus, it's quite scandalously different. Nothing human is foreign to him. One of the remarkable things about the New Testament account of Jesus' life is that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ever turn down an invitation? In fact, in the case of Lazarus, he invites himself. Not only does Jesus come to the party, but he saves the party. And what a party it was. We're told that in first century Judaism, a wedding party lasted seven days. Now that's some party. How much we in the church need to learn from the feast and the celebration at this wedding party. And Jesus certainly knew that those water holders 
in which he asked them to put water were for the purpose of ritualistic cleaning, cleansing, which is to say that each of those stone jars, which would hold up to 30 gallons, were for Jewish rites of purification. The washing had nothing to do with sanitation. They were one of several hundred shoulds that had evolved and were now insisted upon by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. In the face of all these shoulds, Jesus says, you're piling burdens on the people so they don't ever know if they've done enough to please God. And at another time, he says, what defiles a person is not what's on the outside, which can be washed away, but what is on the inside. This Jesus does a tremendously symbolic act. He takes 180 gallons of should water and changes it into wine for a wedding celebration. Now, the point of the gospel writer is this, that God does that for us as well. We who are drowning in shoulds are relieved of that burden and given the zest of new wine in our lives. Jesus takes 180 gallons. Of course you don't need 180 gallons of wine. That's just the point. Jesus' symbolic act points to the magnificence of God's grace, which is overflowing, which is ever abounding, which is without limits. And yet, how quickly we impose our own set of shoulds on ourselves. One outstanding pastor said, I was in my 50s before it occurred to me that God might be as present in my wants and desires as in my shoulds and oughts. We can so easily kill the joy. But the story isn't complete without the part of Jesus going to Jerusalem, the second part of the scripture. To savor the world without at the same time trying to save it may be more boring than trying to save the world without savoring it. Right after being the life of the party, Jesus becomes the scourge of the temple crowd who have made God's house into a house of trade. Notice how unsentimental Jesus is. He knows that you can't really help the powerless without taking on the powerful. You can't really bring any real comfort to the poor and oppressed without taking on those who oppress and get rich by oppressing. Most of us, would prefer a risk-free route of helping the poor and the powerless while avoiding confrontation with those who make and keep them that way. But what Jesus shows and knows is we can't really get away with that. 
Jesus, with his full humanity, undoubtedly would have liked to have avoided confrontation. There is a direct line that runs from this incident of cleansing the temple to the cross. I don't imagine Jesus wanted a cross in his life any more than we do. That's a part of our shared humanity. But what he knew was that you can't really savor the world without trying to save it. If the wine, the zest in our lives has gone out, it could be because our passion for improving the world has diminished in us. I'm convinced that the same thing that motivated Jesus to go to the wedding feast took him to Jerusalem, that it was a gratitude for the gift of life and the resultant desire for others to have the same gift of abundance. Why would Jesus go to Jerusalem and risk everything that was involved? Why would anyone face a Jerusalem that they might be able to avoid? What I'd like to suggest is that the bottom line is that Jesus felt that in his decision to go to Jerusalem, his very soul was at stake. His integrity, his very life was up for grabs. Being fully human, he could have turned around and gone back up to Galilee, but his understanding was that in that moment, he would have become a fraction of himself. He would have left his soul at the city limits, his self-respect. He had come to a point in his life where there was something he had to do or forfeit who he was. Have you ever had a sense of being at that point in your life? Jeffrey Wingate has... His story is told in the movie, The Insider. He was a senior executive for Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company. He was relieved of his job and given a large severance to say nothing outside the company after he began to say something inside the company about the addictive quality of nicotine. He raised questions about the tobacco company's use of that addictive quality to get and keep customers. He was harassed. He received anonymous death threats. An investigative group was hired to produce 500 pages of a dossier to discredit him. The resistance of CBS to airing the story on 60 Minutes became its own story. But his concerns and the work of 60 Minutes producer Lowell Bergman tipped the teeter-totter of litigation so that tobacco companies would share the responsibility for the destructiveness of cigarette smoking. But that came with a price. There was a period of unemployment, and then he took a job teaching science and became the teacher of the year in Kentucky. 
Later, he became a lecturer and a consultant on tobacco control policies. Now, I realize most of us will not be in that exact kind of situation. But those challenges come in our everyday life. The decisions to be made still come. The challenges come in other ways. Rich Dodge, who is with us today and gave me permission to share his story. He's a foundry member. Rich was a partner in the largest law firm in the world. And then at age 52 came December the 20th, 2021. He was diagnosed with ALS, a crippling and debilitating progressive disease. After the stunning reality began to set in, Rich decided that while he couldn't do what he was doing, he would do something else for the world. He contacted his longest and closest friend, Rob, with whom he had played soccer in college. Rich is white, Rob is black. And he said, let's get two other of our friends, one black and one white, we know each other, we know about our lives. Let's develop a podcast about the lies that racism tells, the lies that have shaped and misshaped us and our country. And that's just what they are doing. In spite of what disease and racism does, they are telling the lies of racism. Rich says that this has brought him enjoyment because of the relationships and the time they spend together working on this project. And it has also given him the opportunity to improve the world by exposing the lies for what they are. Here at Foundry, we have a number of ministries <clears throat> that are ways to improve the world and change it. The ID ministry, English as a Second Language, Sacred Resistance, Project Transformation, Books to Prisons, the Interfaith Network's work to increase funding in our public schools, to work with students on ways other than violence to resolve conflict. All of these involve an investment of your life. And those are just here at Foundry. Where you live and work provide opportunities as well. Jesus determined that the only way to really enjoy the world is to love it into improvement. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He knew that life which is compromised to the hilt isn't really worth living. He knew that life is not just measured in terms of dollars and titles and positions, but also it's measured in terms of honor and integrity and basic self-respect. Day by day, I arise in the morning torn between the desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world, to savor the world 
or to save it. Jesus knew that ambiguity, and it would seem that he resolved it by loving the world into salvation. As his disciples, we are called to do no less.